Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Katie Howie. Katie, would you like to introduce yourself? I'd love to. Yes, so I have, well, I'm an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Southern Mississippi within the College of Business and Economic Development. And I do research on cancel culture, brand activism, the way political orientation shapes consumption behavior and factors that affect consumer well-being. That is so important to study. How did you get into uh, the university environment for your career? I finished my MBA and I worked in corporate marketing for Bass Pro Shops for a couple years. And I loved it, but I missed like the university environment and I really like to learn. I, I have a really curious nature. I like to understand things. And so going back to school and pursuing academia was really attractive and the lifestyle is not bad. <laughs> Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor at Verity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. And now back to the podcast. So I want to actually talk about some of the research that you've done. What are some of the more interesting, um, you know, pieces of wisdom or insight that you've come across? Yeah, for sure. So um, I work with two co-authors on studying cancel culture. So I work with Dr. Rhiannon Messler at the University of Lethbridge in Canada. And then I work with Dr. Jessica Brindenberg, who's at uh, Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. And we were awarded a $50,000 grant from the Canadian government to study cancel culture. So we have a lot of stuff in the works and that will be coming. We have a paper currently under review and we were interested in who is canceling. If you look in the media, there's a lot of commentary on, you know, this is just a phenomenon of the left. This is political correctness. But we also know that the right cancels. And we know this just by Donald Trump's presidency. And, you know, he had constant, you know, calls for boycotts of different people and companies and whatever. Um, But for the right, we see they just don't call it cancel culture. They've really weaponized that term to kind of other and take down the left. Um, So anyway, some of it's semantics. And so we were interested in who is canceling. And we had this theory that it's not so much what your ideology is. So whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning, that may not so much matter. 
but it's a phenomenon of how central to your identity is your political orientation, independent of what it specifically is. Um, so we've come up with this new construct of political identity centrality. And, and all it is, um, is this idea of, we all have these identities and they're composed of a lot of different things. And how prominent is your political ideology to your identity at large? And we ran a study surveying Americans and we found support for this idea. So it's not the right or the left. Everybody's doing it if your ideology is very central to who you are. And we see this happening due to a couple mechanisms. One of them is social vigilantism. So this idea that I have a superior opinion or set of moral standards, and I'm going to enforce those on what I view as ignorant others. Wow. And then we also see this occurring through, not surprisingly, virtue signaling. So with virtue signaling, this is, you know, we want to publicly show our values often in a grandiose way in an attempt to garner attention or admiration from others. And we can all think of it being on Twitter and seeing people post or retweet something and it's like, yeah, yeah, man, I get it. Um, and what was also interesting in this study was what wasn't significant. So we had, we measured self-efficacy. So is you know are people canceling because they feel like their behavior is going to be really effective at you know achieving change and outcomes? And this this was not a driver of canceling behavior, which indicated to us that it's less about achieving something and more about internal personal benefit of that. You know, I'm I'm reinforcing my identity to others and myself that, you know, I'm very much on the right or the left. And, you know, I'm very virtuous. And I want you to know that about me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard the term moral exporting. Can you explain what that is? Yes, yes. We've, we've also been looking into moral exporting. So it's fairly similar to social vigilantism. And... These are people who feel like their moral standards are what everyone should have, and they're really motivated to push those standards and beliefs onto others. So you can imagine how that would really align with engaging and calling out other people for their behavior and demanding, um, you know, punitive actions taken against them. This is all really interesting, Katie. And now that we have kind of a framework for understanding, what are some suggestions you have on how we can kind of heal and move forward? So in terms of like, where do we go from here? I think we need to better understand it. I think a lot of people don't really understand how we've gotten here and why. So we now see you know, general people who can get on social media and connect with like-minded people are able to have a, a voice. And to some degree, like this can be really positive. You know, we have, you know, 
minority groups and people who have maybe been oppressed or they haven't had a voice in the past, they're able now to get some attention. So this can be good. But the problem comes in where often the punishments that happen to people who are canceled do not match the infraction. They don't. And because this is just a mob, there's no governing, moderating body or individual who can kind of say, well, this is reasonable, this isn't. So some kind of recognition of that, that this isn't actually an effective system. If we, by effective, we mean that it can create change, then yes, it is effective. Um, but if, if, what we're after is raising the moral standards and social norms in our country, shaming people and, you know, in many instances, ruining their lives isn't the way to do it. And overall, like if we watch people get canceled over and over again, and sometimes for really silly things, it creates a culture of fear, right? We're afraid of saying the wrong things. And so instead of, you know, venturing and talking about topics that are kind of new to us, we just will abstain. And clearly that's not going to promote growth. Um, so we have to think of ourselves as bystanders when we're online. And when we see people being called out, people being piled on, you know, significant consequences being demanded. You know, to some degree, not engaging at all is what would make sense with the algorithm, right? So not adding any fuel to the fire, because right, any even positive messaging is going to rank it higher, make it more likely to be picked up in the media, et cetera. But I think there is a place for voices to come in and say, hey, like, there's more to the story here. And I don't know if the consequences that you're asking for really match what's happened. Um, and then also changing the conversation to what can this individual or this organization learn? Like, how, like what do we want from them? I think often what's so frustrating with cancel culture is it's like, how do we satisfy this angry mob, right? If they want us to change our corporate practices, okay, then let's have that conversation. Or if they just want us to acknowledge that we were wrong. And that's, that's one of the things we've written in our paper is with, you know, somebody who's coming from a place of wanting to be a social vigilante then, you know, we acknowledge like, hey, you have, you know, some information or some expertise that we didn't have on, you know, the topic of maybe trans rights or minorities or something and saying, you know, and we're going to take that information and here's what we're going to do. And then we need the angry mob to like <laughs> have a point where they're like, okay, like we did our job, change is happening. And also, like, how can we use this platform that has now been created to educate others? Um, and I think right now, so many companies, at least, are so 
scared and they have such a knee-jerk reaction when things happen. And I think there also needs to be a whole heck of a lot of acknowledgement that these things do blow over. They do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Twitter has the memory of a goldfish. I'm sure for Mm -hmm. anyone that's been canceled, that week feels like the longest week of your life. Um, But in terms of a company like firing an employee that really, it may not be warranted, have the, you know, the strength, the courage and the foresight to wait it out. Makes sense. And the, the best, the best practices in this area are proactively before anything happens, come up with contingency plans. If X, then Y. And of course you can't think through every scenario, but that way when something unforeseen happens and everyone's emotions are running incredibly high, you, you have a voice of reason to come back to. Because I'm sure everything seems so much more catastrophic in the moment. And it's so hard to make reasonable decisions in that. And I think we forget that organizations are made up of people who make very, very emotional decisions. Wow. Even even CEOs, would you say? Oh, for sure. For sure. So I want to ask, I uh, want... Obviously, we've all seen a lot of cancellations over the last few years. And one of the ones that particularly rubbed me the wrong way was Chris something from The Bachelor. Um, he Such ba- a good example. Yeah. So there was a... Yeah, just to recap for the listeners, there was a, a woman on The Bachelor who had attended a Southern-themed party, and they were all wearing, you know, things you would wear in the South in the early 1900s. It was a costume party. And, and I think it it, yep, it was hosted at a plantation. Okay. Do you yeah, actually do you wanna do you wanna recap the story? I feel like you can you could probably do a better job than me. Sure. Um so this contestant was on the show and I don't remember how this information came to light, but yeah, she'd attended this party and y'all, I'm I'm not southern, I'm from the Midwest, but I'm currently living in the South, so I totally understand that this was a thing that happened. Um, so yeah, they had a party at a plantation, which, you know, in modern culture, using plantations for anything novel really isn't acceptable. And like the public came for her, came for her. Um, but what we're interested, what we're discussing and what's interesting is how Chris Harrison handled it. And I think he went on a talk show and was remorseful on her behalf. And I thought he gave a really kind of diplomatic and level-headed explanation and opinion on it. And more or less said, this is a young woman who didn't understand all the implications of what was happening around her and all of her peers were engaging in it. And she is remorseful and she has learned and, you know, she's going to do better. And like that, that was not what the public wanted to hear. Alex, what else do you remember about this event? Well, then they replaced him. So he, he was punished for defending her. Yes. And I, 
I was actually thinking about this example earlier today, and I really think one of the main drivers for him being taken off the show was a broader discussion around The Bachelor and the whiteness of it. I think that the larger point here is that it was generally unwarranted. There there may there may be other reasons. I think there probably are. Yeah, and like he he was a staple of that franchise. Mm-hmm. And when I watched his apology, I thought it was perfect. I I if I had been, you know, his PR person, that's exactly what I would have told him to do. You acknowledge what was wrong. You accept, you know, you accept responsibility. You express remorse. And, oh, and one of the other things he did is he decoupled himself from the action. So often people see, you know, this tiny snippet of what somebody has done and they generalize it to their whole moral character. Um, So he went directly at that and was like, you know, I'm a good person and it's important to me that, you know, I make the right decisions and I'm good to people. And this was one instance where a misstep occurred, Mm -hmm. Um, which I thought was just brilliant. Um, But yeah, even, even doing that and signaling growth and change wasn't, didn't do it. So if we were to turn the conversation to ourselves, let's say you or I or somebody you're close with is under fire and you're giving them advice on how to navigate through it, what would be your top pieces of advice? Respond quickly to control the narrative. Because if it gets picked up by the media and you don't have your voice in there, there's nothing that's going to balance the conversation. Um, I would comment once and that's it. You right, the news cycle ends there. Well, it, at least it shortens that news cycle if you're not repeatedly adding content um, that can be covered. Yeah, and I I do what Chris Harrison did. I think that's all you can do. That's really good advice. This is super interesting. Are, so it is PR kind of, your um, kind of skill set. I didn't mean to go into PR, but yes, like in in wanting to understand the psychological underpinnings of what's happening here, then yeah, you figure out what levers need to be pushed. Over your career, how have you used this knowledge to help others? Um, you know, this is relatively new. Like we've collected this study in the past six months. So I, I haven't had a chance to, honestly. Yeah. Maybe this podcast is a, is a, is a good start. <laughs> yeah. You just never know where life's going to take you. Right. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about how you collected this data. I mean, it makes sense, of course, but I'm interested how you, how you came to be so confident in it. So we surveyed U.S. adults on a survey platform. We had about 500 participants. Um, so for the type of analysis we were doing, 500 is is decently robust. And our findings were strong and they they were consistent. So that that's led us to be confident and also like 
the theoretical logic behind these relationships is really well established, right? Like it just makes sense that virtue signaling and social social vigilantism are gonna lead people to want to call out others, try and police the behavior of others. And I don't think it gets talked enough about that so much of cancel culture isn't even about the person who's transgressed. It's about other people finding a way to make themselves look better. Mm -hmm. Which I, yeah. when I think of it that way, it just feels so icky. Yeah. So much time that people spend on social media is just about positioning themselves, right? Giving a highlight reel and giving this really curated image of who they are and who they want to be. And this is another lever to do that. Well, how do you respond to the concept of, you know, if you're not virtue signaling, if you're not putting your morals out there, then you are part of the problem? The the problem being what? Um, perhaps like not bringing attention or awareness to something or not pushing a social initiative forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was also thinking this morning, like, what's the right way to do this? And I think the right way to do it is contact somebody privately, get in their DMs and say, hey, like, you posted X or you did Y and, well, I'm, if it's a minor infraction, and say, I think this is wrong because of these reasons. And, you know, I think it's important for you to understand why this is wrong. And in the future, this is what you should do. And often we really need to be specific with people so that they understand both why it's wrong and what to do differently. And I, I can tell you this from teaching college students. I, you really have to spell it out and make it concrete for them or it's just kind of nebulous. And then if it's, say it's a celebrity, maybe you're not going to hop in the DMs of, of a celebrity, but public shaming really is such a harsh thing. Um, but I, in some instances, right, we see people do truly horrific things and attention does need to be called to it. And that's the only way to do it. Absolutely. I, it's, it's a great example of like a good, um, a good idea, but executed in a way that um, uh, it hurts more than it helps. Right. Yeah. And, and we can think both on like the individual level of how do we um, get the outcomes we want for this individual who's transgressed, but also like how does this type of culture affect our society at large? And we've got to keep both of those outcomes in mind, right? Yeah. And our, like, argu our, arguably, society at large is more important than these one-off individuals. Yeah, there's the idea that, 
you know, there's a very vocal minority on either side of the political spectrum. And that, sm- that small minority of people are, are very loud. And then the vast majority of people, maybe 80%, kind of want nothing to do with it and um, aren't interested. <laughs> but um, it seems like there's so many people uh, that, you know, that are fighting, but there really aren't. Yes, that's a great point, too. Um, because they're vocal and the algorithms are made to show that, right? We're then led to characterize both party by these vocal 20%. And that's part of what fuels polarization is you don't see the right or the left based on that more quiet, more moderate 80%. And therefore, like, that's not how we characterize them. I want to ask, um, just going back to the uh, tactical, you know, what can you do if you as a person are canceled? I'm curious, how does the response change for a company? So a company is a lot more complicated because often when you're getting canceled, people dig into your history to see what other crappy stuff you've done and you know with the company you've got their operating practices where do they source their things from how do they source it you know there's so many skeletons that can be in a closet so i think you have to go into major damage control and see you know what other weaknesses do you have and prepare for handling those if they're also brought into question. And what do you do if you have other skeletons in the closet? Go research yourself like anybody else would. See what you find. Um, have, I mean, I don't, if you have skeletons in your closet, I don't think it's necessarily moral to use a whole bunch of SEO efforts to try and bury it really far. But you could. Um, and then if you know something's going to come out, it would probably be best for the public to hear it from you in a way, in a narrative that you've crafted. I, I think, you know, generally the strategy is to stay in control. Because if you let the media or Joe Schmo and his basement on Twitter, you know, leading the charge, then you're, you're on the defense and your options are way fewer. Yeah. That's interesting that like the collective consciousness operates as like a single actor in a sense. Um, but it's not controlled by any one person. So, right. I don't know how to ask this, but like, how does that how how does a public stance against somebody form? So generally you have a call out. So you have a, a single person who kind of sounds an alarm. And I think a lot of people find a ton of satisfaction and pride from like being the, the finder outer who, who was the initial call out. And then people retweet it and retweet it and retweet it and you know it hits a tipping point and i 
I heard a quote that I thought was really elegant for this. And it's the, um, a single snowflake does not take credit for the avalanche, but that's, that's what the avalanche is made of, right? All of those snowflakes acting together. And then often at a tipping point, the media will cover it. And then from there, of course, things exponentially increase. And I think the media also needs to take into account what their role in these things are. You know, even if they cover a cancellation and within the content of that article, they point out the flaws and maybe it wasn't even factual what that person's being canceled for. But we know people don't read articles, they just read headlines. And often we know that people confuse things and they forget pieces. So all somebody may remember is that um, Tom Hanks was canceled. Okay. So they'll totally forget the fact that it was he was canceled for something fake. Like this is a well-established phenomenon in the marketing literature. Um, so in some cases, I think the media's best play may not to be right to maybe to not write about something at all. And if they do to make sure it's very clear in the headline, like if this is a legitimate thing or not. Yeah. I think that the amplification causes the problem because most people don't care, but then if it is kind of in their face, then they won't be able to help but care. And one example is Twitter. So I'll see things on Twitter that I know are like intentionally put there to get a rise out of me. And in the ser- in the search results, uh, not not the but the trending, because everybody gets different trending um, based on where you are, and I I would presume also like based on what they think is most interesting, and um, you'll see a mix of like things you like and things you don't like, and I was like, this is so this is so manipulative to make me feel like. Um, slightly triggered almost and keep me engaged oh yeah exactly to to keep people engaged we have to provoke their emotions right and you know moderate middle of the road content doesn't engage people emotionally so and you can't just make people like happy and giggle at puppies and cute cats consistently right you need a variety of emotions to to get the sauce right what industry would you say this knowledge is most beneficial in would it be politics business i think public figures so whether you're a politician a celebrity um any type of public figure this is going to be relevant for um, especially if you are a figurehead for the right or the left, because if you are, then you're just kind of a target and people are looking, they're looking for an opening. As far as industries go, companies who we hold to a high moral standard have way farther to fall and 
people are way less tolerant of infractions from them. So think of companies that make things for vulnerable populations like infants, old people. Um, I would say pharmaceutical companies are held to a higher standard, but in our country, <laughs> we've all just kind of accepted that a lot of them don't operate to the moral standard that we would hope they did. We're one of the only countries where medical advertising on TV is allowed. Right. Yeah. I My previous position was at a Canadian university. And yeah, I mentioned it in class one day and they were like, no, that doesn't happen here. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, I want to ask about mud monsters. So they said that Trump was a mud monster. I think uh, Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot is a mud monster. A lot of people don't like her, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything. Can you explain why they are kind of able to persevere through canceling after a certain point? I think often you have to remember your fan base isn't usually who's canceling you. It's the people who already don't like you and don't support you, whether like they don't support you financially by buying your products or donating to your campaigns. Um, so in a sense, if the people who don't like you or who didn't like you previously are the ones that are loud and hateful, it's, it's not going to hurt you that much. And it may even help you. We've seen time and time again with Trump, when the left comes after him, his supporters like beat off of that that makes them even more like drawn to him and supportive of him. And, you know, we've just seen that with the Mar-a-Lago investigation. That was one of the best things that's happened to his fundraising. Right. Wow. Um, and also we're seeing this in the marketing literature, the underdog narrative is so effective. So in some cases, you're handing them a gift to say, show how inappropriately disadvantaged this is this is making you and how, you know, even in the face of enormous obstacles, like you're still going to win. Like it's such a compelling narrative. Yeah, you're right. I, I really like that. I think society loves an underdog. Oh, they do. Well, and I'm curious how generalizable that is, because I think to some degree, this is like an Americana ideal that we have. Yeah, mud, mud monster is funny. I, I really liked learning that term. <laughs> That's new to me. I've not heard that before. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, it's it's just you have all of the negative things like you check all of the boxes you know you can't there's nothing left to <laughs> to cancel you for and um so it's it's almost like a like a protective element yeah well and i think some of it is they don't apologize they may not double down on their stances but they just keep on doing what they're doing yeah, would you recommend to, well, yeah, there's some people that say never bow to the mob, but your response was to explain and accept responsibility. So 
How do you reconcile those two pieces of advice? This comes down to a, it's not a one size fits all approach. And for most companies, you do want to maintain a positive reputation with as much of the public as you can. And you do need like trust and support with the public. But we do have these really specific, I'll call them brand personalities or like types of reputations where you can just kind of own it and make it fit with your persona. I would say often the personas this works for are kind of caricatures. Um, People who, you know, have previously been shown to kind of do what they want and not worry a whole lot about trying to be everything to everyone. And you need to know your customers really well. So the better you know, like, who your fan base is, you know, what's important to these people, what are their values, what are their morals. Um, You know, we see organizations, I'm trying to think of an example, all the time who make kind of benign moves. But let's say you have a ton of hardcore Republican customers and you even look like you're aligned with PETA or something and people will come after you. Um, When I worked for Bass Pro Shops, we were aligned with some nonprofit, but that nonprofit was against the NRA and people would figure this out and just lose their minds just because we had this like third removed connection to someone who was anti-NRA. Like, wow. Um, And you got to like, you have to really know and understand your customers and your industry to look out for stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I I was just thinking, you know, whoever that is, that is doing that research, looking for something to be outraged by, Let's say they're right here with us and you can give them a message. What would you say? I would say that your morals don't need to be defined by how much you police others. And there's a time and a place for trying to control and enforce others' behavior, but it shouldn't be your first priority. Um, and, unless you are like defending helpless people, like if if your agenda is something like human slavery, by all means, like get after it. Um, but if it's for the NRA or something like that, um, find better uses of your time, because I think you really focus on. What what outcome are you going after? If you're going after making the NRA the best organization it can be, hollering at Bass Pro for having a third removed connection that's anti-NRA, I can guarantee you is not the best use of your time. Um, and also ask yourself, like, am I actually doing this to benefit the NRA or do I just get a huge feeling of satisfaction from proving somebody else that they're wrong. 
Because if that's really at your core, what's driving your behavior, you're not helping society. You're not taking care of yourself. That is not a healthy or positive way to engage with the world. Um, so find out what really matters to you and how you can progress that cause in a way that's not harmful to others and is true to yourself. Wow, that was great. Hopefully it made sense. Yeah. You um, you mentioned something in our previous call that when people on the left cancel somebody, they, they might still consume their products and services, but um, on the right... Uh, they will boycott the companies and shop at their competitors. In addition to our empirical research on cancel culture, we also have work on brand activism. So they they kind of align and overlap, um, and they're both really fun and interesting. The existing literature shows that boycotts happen from both the right and the left. Okay, so this is established, but our question was, do these people boycott in the same way? Because theory would suggest that they don't. And what got us interested in this topic was when Gillette released their campaign, I don't know, maybe six years ago called The Best a Man Can Get. A lot of you probably thought it was a video basically denouncing toxic masculinity and saying that, you know, men, we can do better. And it sparked tons of outrage. Um, Some people disagreed with the message and some people just disagreed with the source in the aspect of like Gillette, just sell me razors. Who are you to tell me like how to act in the world? And people took to Twitter as they do. And what was so fascinating was people weren't just saying like Gillette, you know, mind your own business, but they were saying, Gillette, I'm not going to shop with you anymore. And specifically, I'm going to go shop with your competitor, Bic, or the Dollar Shave Club. And we were kind of surprised that this was such a consistent response. And it seemed to be kind of a vindictive stab of not only do you not get my business, but I'm going to one of your biggest competitors and I'm going to now support them. So it really felt like saying, Hey, I'm joining the other team to work against you. And so we have done some studies to dive into this. And so what we find is while the right and the left both do this, it's more of a phenomenon with conservatives. So they're looking to punish the brand that has upset them in some way. And one of the levers that they found to kind of satisfy this is to go with a competitor. And we also found in in an experiment that by leveraging this advertising message, a competitor could come in and snatch up that market share. And would that be by appealing to the values that the people who are angry at that original company have? So if you were the Dollar Shave Club in this scenario, 
Okay. We know that a lot of the people who were upset about with the dollar or a lot of the people who were upset with Gillette were more right-leaning. So if I were the Dollar Shave Club, I'd hop on to my online advertising. I would target all of the Republicans that I could, and I would show them an advertisement and specifically highlight that the Dollar Shave Club is the number one rival of Gillette to remind people and make that salient. And I think that would be insanely effective. So you wouldn't say appeal to the conservative values. You would rather just say that you are the sort of opposite or a competitor for what they're angry about and that itself is enough. Right. Because in this instance, what's salient for them is the desire to punish and seek retribution against Gillette. And so what they need to find is an outlet for that and seeing the enemy, so to speak, the number one rival of Gillette then becomes a way for them to change teams. Mm -hmm. And that this concept reminds me of the Biden and Trump election where people say that people didn't vote for Biden. They voted against Trump. There's a very common understanding um, of, of the psychology. And would you say that's the same kind of concept? Right. Yeah. Um, in this instance, it has basically nothing to do with who the alternative brand is. Just that they're a big rival. Mm-hmm. That they're the not Gillette, if, you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the the people, they don't necessarily want Dollar Shave Club, but they do still need a razor, let's say, and they know they don't want a certain brand, and they know it's like, the other one's okay. And I, I think by giving money to the Dollar Shave Club, it feels like they're taking action against Gillette. Mm-hmm. And we, we also ask these... In one of our studies, we asked people to recall like boycotting a company because of a social or political action that they've taken. And conservatives reported that it was more important to them to quickly go and make a purchase from a competitor. So they're, they have this motivation and they need to do something with it and quickly. Now, what, what's the long-term effects of this? Not well studied, not well understood. As you can imagine, doing longitudinal research like that is hard to do and very expensive. And if anyone would like to give me the money to do that, <laughs> I would happily do it. Um, but but hopefully we'll we'll get some some better data on that in the future. Yeah, this is so interesting. Um... I really like that there is an explanation for all of this, for all that's been happening, because it really makes you feel powerless when you see all of the anger being spread in society and you feel like you don't know what you can do. Um, maybe that's a good final question. So for all of us in the 80%, the spectators, what can we do to help with this situation? I think for our own personal kind of sanity and grounding, 
we need to recognize that what we see on the internet is not the whole world. And, you know, our social media engines are designed to be rage machines, basically. And that there are a lot more people level-minded and, you know, not so extreme out there. Um, And that regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, the people on the other side are way more like you than you would ever believe. And I think we need to better kind of empathize and understand, like, why do people believe or take stances that are so different from me? And if you take the time to understand, like, the background and the way that these people get there, you can be so much more empathetic um, and understanding of them and kind of recognize the humanity that they have. Um, Jonathan Haidt has written some really incredible books. and they've been really eye-opening and I I can't recommend them enough. Um, One of them is the coddling of the American mind. And then the other one is, Oh, the righteous mind. Oh yeah. I haven't heard of this. Yeah. It's an older book. So the, the sub heading is why good people are divided by politics and religion. And it, it really gives you a full character and illustration of who people are on the right and the left rather than these tiny oversimplified caricatures that we have and I don't think any of us should feel bad that that's the way that we view the world because this is the way the world is portrayed to us and that's just how we've been socialized but the world makes a whole lot more sense when when you get a deeper deeper insight. Well, thank you, Katie, for sharing your insight. Um, And this has been such an important podcast episode. So I really hope that all of those who are listening are, you know, learned a lot uh, about the reality of the world and what we can do to help make it a little better. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Alex, for having me. This has been so fun to break down and talk through. Awesome. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you. Bye, everyone.